Don't you just love it when you can confidently say that someone has your back? Hi, Dave Lee here, and that's the feeling I have with UCARE. Anytime I call them up with a Medicare question, I know without a doubt that a real person will answer, and they will work through my issues no matter how long it takes, and they won't hang up until I completely understand what's going on. Their people and customer service are second to none, and it's why UCARE has people-powered health plans. Don't hesitate to reach out to UCARE for help. Learn more at UCARE.org slash Medicare. This paid endorsement brought to you by UCARE. Today, on my first concert, if I remember the story right, you really didn't know a whole lot about him, did you? Um, not that much. Um, probably, you know, my once again, my brother was was into his music much more than I was. Yeah, was he the tour manager? He had become tour manager for Prince in um, 83, um, only for several months. And then when it was the 1999 tour. And when that tour was over, Alan, who was actually living in, in New Jersey at that point, he went home to Jersey. He was out on the road um, with the band Cameo, uh, tour managing a tour in the summer of, of 83. And he got a call from Prince's manager, Steve Hardnoli, at the point at that point and said, um, we're getting ready to do a movie. And we need somebody to basically kind of serve as a tour manager, but in place to be the liaison between the band, kind of take care of the band like you would if you were on the road, but it's basically going to be here in Minneapolis while we're shooting this movie. And Alan said, well, that sounds interesting. And Steve Fargnoli, Prince manager said, the only thing is you need to come to Minneapolis tomorrow. <laughs> Welcome to my first concert. Dave Lee back with you along with Davide, our producer. Nice to have you with. And of course, a reminder, you can download this on Spotify, on Apple, on TalkNorth.com, wherever you get your podcasts. And we're there for you. Eric Lees is our guest. He has some great stories. He's an accomplished musician. And we'll talk with him in just a few minutes. Uh, thank you to you, Care, for making the show possible. Also for Propane.com. We'll learn more about that as we go along. Our thanks to Aquarius Home Services and for providing us uh, the Aquarius Home Services studio to broadcast from today. And also by StarBank.net, Minnesota Bank. We'll tell you more about them as well. But to start off today, Eric Lees, very accomplished. I'll tell you more about what he does and what he's uh, doing now. But Eric, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Well, I'm happy to be here. Now, let me go back to days when you were just a fan of music before. And I know you learned very young, but when uh -huh. you attended a concert, not as a musician, but just as a fan, what was your first concert? Okay, I was I was thinking about that. And um, there is something unfortunate about what I'm going to relate. Um, I don't know when this is necessarily going to be aired, but we just so you have the timeline, we're taping this, I can say, on, on June 7th. In the news yesterday... June 6th, there was a tragic shooting in Richmond, Virginia, outside of the Altria Theater. They were having a series of uh, high school graduation ceremonies. So I'm sure people may have known about this. It just so happens that the Altria Theater in Richmond, Virginia, I lived in Richmond, Virginia from 1959 to 1966. I wasn't born there, but I lived there for those seven years, from ages seven to 14. The Altria Theater um, had been called the Landmark Theater for several years. Before that, when I lived in Richmond as a kid, it was the mosque. And it was in spring of 1962 that I saw my first music, really heavy music concert at the Mosque Theater, which is now the Altria Theater, where this, unfortunately, where this shooting took place yesterday. That, yeah, that brought back memories, and, yes. uh, and unfortunately so. But yeah. what was that first concert? Okay. It was a program, back in those days, there were what were known as rhythm and blues package shows that were promoted. There was several different promoters that would do these shows and they would put maybe nine or 10 acts together and the show would go out for maybe two or three months. They would be on a bus doing one nighters, usually in the Southeast and in the near Midwest. They usually didn't go much further West than Chicago because of the logistics of traveling. 
So this was a show, it was called, um, I forget what's, in fact, the promoter was Irvin Feld, who later bought and ran Barnum and Bailey Ringley Brothers Circus for oh years and years and years. But he started uh, promoting R&B shows. And for about 10 or 15 years, there, there was, you know, a big, big market. And Richmond, Virginia was always a big stop on these shows because it was the first stop south of Washington on their way to Carolina, Atlanta, and everywhere deep south. It was kind of the upper end of what had been referred to as the Chitlin Circuit. But these were theaters. So in this show in spring of 62, the co-headliners, Fats Domino, and Brooke Benton. <laughs> also on the show were the Impressions. Um, Gene Chandler was on the show. The way those shows used to work, since there were like nine or ten acts, most of the acts would have maybe two songs. You get up, you do your, your latest hit, and maybe one other song. And they would just, they were on and off the stage. There was usually one band that would back up almost all of the artist. Some of the artists might have their own musical director, their own guitar player, bass player, drummer. But as far as horn sections or fleshing out, there was usually... So basically, there was an MC. Ladies and gentlemen, Gene Chandler, he'll come on and, and his song, his hit song was, at that point, was Duke of Earl. You know, his first huge mm -hmm. hit. He might sing that in one other song that he saw. Thank you very much, Gene Chandler. Next act comes on. Boom, boom, boom. There might be a 10-minute intermission. And then what they did on that, Brooke Benton closed the first half of the show. So he would come on, since he was a co-headliner, he might get maybe 20 minutes, oh. 20, 25 minutes. Then there was an intermission. Then a few of the other supporting acts would come on. And then closing the show was Fats Domino. Now he had his own band. So his band was self-contained. He came on and he probably got about maybe a half hour. Man, did, yeah. he, did he close with Blueberry Hill or... I suspect he did. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, unfortunately, yeah. I, I don't remember too much more about it, but that was probably the first, you know, um, major act, you know, show that, that I saw. Who'd you go with? Do you remember? With my brother. Your brother? Alan, who was five years older than me. He was I, also in the music world. In the music business. Um, he, I, I was, I would have been 10 years old and Alan would have been 15. And, um, you know, my parents would drop us off. We'd yeah. go to the show. They'd pick us up up front. We'd go home. Um, did you know these acts at 10 years old? I uh, guess I did. Oh, yeah. Now, I, I had, we, you know, because of my brother, we had been into this music already for, you know, I probably started listening to Little Richard when I was six, seven years old. The main hero already for both of us was Ray Charles. If there's any specific reason that I can point to as to why I decided to pursue music, even just as something to want to do as a kid, even, you know, long before I even considered whether I would, you know, choose it as a career, it was because of Ray Charles and his music. Alan saw Ray Charles the first time he saw Ray Charles um, also at the mosque in Richmond. As the years went by, in Richmond, Allen was a disc jockey, became a disc jockey at like the age of 16 or 17 at what was then WANT Radio, which was the R&B black radio station in Richmond. And because back in those days, so many of the of, of club gigs and that would come through town were promoted by the musical director or the, the, the station directors and, and the MCs at the radio station, that's when Allen became involved with promotion and started to um, meet and have relationships with so many of these artists, all R&B artists. It's how he met James Brown in 1965. By 1969, Alan was James Brown's national tour director. You know, that's how, and because of Alan, basically, my, my whole involvement in music is, is completely <laughs> yeah. because of my big brother. Yeah, yeah. It really you're, is. You're not, you are a, a world-class jazz musician, but well, outside of that. And the jazz, you know, was was what I was also, you know, at, yeah. at the same time. But all of these, you know, the first time I saw James Brown was at the mosque. Saw James Brown several times over the years there. In 1966, there was a show with Jerry Butler, um... No, this was a show with Stevie Wonder, Joe Tex, Solomon Burke, the Marvelettes, um, and several other acts. My brother had gotten to know Joe Tex very well. 
So I, so he introduced me to Joe Tex. And so I would be able to hang backstage by now. I was backstage at all these shows. Joe Tex was the headliner of this show with his band. Stevie Wonder was a supporting act because he was still little Stevie, little Stevie Wonder. Wonder yeah. His hit record at that point was uptight out of sight, yeah. you know. Yeah. So Solomon Burke, he was on the show. He was, you know, major R&B artist at yeah. that time. So I'm sitting, while the show is going on, I'm sitting in the dressing room with Joe Tex, Solomon Burke, <laughs> and Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and the three of them oh. are just kicking it, chilling it, because the other acts are on right now. Yeah. All of a sudden, Solomon Burke stands up, he hears the MC, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Solomon Burke says, oh, gotta go, <laughs> right out the door, right on the stage. Does his two or three songs, <laughs> comes right off the stage, goes right back into the dressing room, sits down on the floor and says, now what we were talking about? <laughs> you know, Stevie Wonder walks in and says to Joe Tex, he said, hey, one of my costumes ripped. I need an outfit. I think we're the same size. Can I borrow one of yours? And Joe Tex says, sure, pick one out you like. And of course, everybody <laughs> laughed at that. Sure. You know, yeah. so... You know, that's what that's what the camaraderie was for these guys then, because they were all traveling on a bus together. Were you overwhelmed or were you just too young to understand what kind of giants you were sitting with? Half and half. I mm -hmm. mean, I understood, but it was like, this is not this is not the time for me to be gushing, <laughs> you know, because I'm here yep. because Joe Tex invited me. I'm just going to sit down, yep. shut the hell up and just look at this. James Brown was a different circumstance. Hang on to that, because when we yeah. come back, I got to ask you about James Brown. We yeah. talked a little bit off the air about it, but Eric Leeds is with us. World-class jazz musician, had a, uh, a long run with Prince, as a matter of fact, and many others. Miles Davis, he'd been on stage with Miles Davis and others, but we'll talk more about that in uh, just a couple of minutes here on my first concert. Dave Lee with you, and I want to say it's that time of year in Minnesota where we have the hot, humid weather and it's here, and it's just begun. So if you're like me and, and you want that home to stay comfy and cool all summer long, you need a company you can trust, and that my that is my friends over at AquariusHomeServices.com. I've known them for, as I've mentioned many times, well over 20 years, qualified trained technicians, guaranteed work upfront pricing. I remember when Jeff started the business years ago, and they're going to ensure you stay comfy and cool all summer long. I would tell you right now, because the furnace I have is from them, the air conditioner I have is from them, $98 off right now, any AC repair, that's 98 bucks off. Or if you feel like it might be time to replace your unit like I did a few years ago, get a new AC for as low as $55 a month. So you get a hold of them at AquariusHomeServices.com. Ask them about this. They believe in earning the right to be recommended. They really are good at what they do. I got to tell you, they're click away at AquariusHomeServices.com, and you're going to love them. Really good people. Great company. Great to have him on the podcast on my first concert. Eric Leeds is with us. Uh, he has had a heck of a career, continues to play at his leisure nowadays. <laughs> but, boy, he was busy uh, most of these years. I do want to ask you uh, about On the Corner Band at some time and go back to some of your early oh, wow. bands. Okay. But uh, let's talk about James Brown and that relationship. And, and with your great love and dedication to jazz, mm -hmm. and, and how do you tie James Brown in with that? What was it about him that made him well, special? Well, before, before I get into James, I, I, sh I should also say, because, you know, also jazz being such a significant part, really, of, of you know, my primary aspirations as a musician. Um, shortly after I saw my first concert with Brooke Benton and Fats Domino, later that same year, this 1962, um, my family on my father's side was from New York. So my aunt and uncle and my grandmother lived in New York. So um, my brother and I would spend a lot of time there. That's where your love for the Yankees must have come from. Um, years, years later. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, in the summer of 62, my aunt and uncle and my grandmother took Alan and myself to the Village Gate, you know, one of the most famous jazz clubs in all the world at that time. And we saw Thelonious Monk's Quartet, Herbie Mann's Afro-Latin Jazz Band, and a saxophone player that I had not yet heard of by the name of Eric Dolphy, who was, who unfortunately had passed away just several years after that. But even today, among real hardcore jazz aficionados, um, Eric Dolphy was one of the great legendary saxophone players. So this, that was probably really my first jazz gig, 
Hmm. That that you know, so I'm I'm having these experiences by seeing R and B and the pop music that I loved at the same time that I'm starting to to, to be able to see some of these great jazz artists. So anyway, um, to get to James Brown, um, my brother met James Brown. Actually, um, the first time I met James Brown was in December of 1964. So I'm a, just a about a month shy of my 13th birthday. And I met him very, very briefly all for just about five or 10 minutes. Didn't really get to see him again until a couple of years later, where um, by now my brother knew him much better. And um, probably around 66 is when I, you know, was now able to, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever James Brown was appearing, I would be hanging backstage with James Brown and his band. Hmm. What was as important to me about his music was his band. Because aside from being just the singer and the performer and the musical um, conceptualist that James Brown was, he was a quintessential band leader. And the James Brown bands were legendary. Um, in, you know, not only at that, but throughout his, his career. And one of my absolute favorite circumstances was at a, at a James Brown gig, once again, at the Mosque Theater in Richmond in April of 1966. My brother and I were, were at, the, at the gig while they were doing um, a rehearsal before the show started. And the band was big. I mean, James's band had three drummers. I mean, three drum kits on stage. And there were certain songs where those three drummers, <clears throat> excuse me, were playing together. He had two guitars, bass. He had four or five saxophone players, three trumpets, a trombone. It was a huge band. So I'm backstage at, at the theater while they're doing some rehearsing. And I'm just standing there like, oh, my God. <laughs> How in the world did this happen? And I almost got kicked out of the backstage area when one of James Brown's crew guys saw me standing there and said, son, you're not allowed back here. This is the backstage area. You're not allowed here. And I thought I was going to, you know, get kicked out of backstage. James Brown was sitting at the organ and he heard that. And he looked at his crew guy and he says, oh, no, that's okay. This young man is fine. And he said to me, Rick, which was my nickname that I used for years, Rick, he said, Rick, come closer to the band. You got to feel this. <laughs> that was like, you know, that, that's like kind of where I lost my musical virginity. You know, I mean, because once you feel that, you, 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 you know, that's it. And you've said he combined everything beautifully, didn't he? I mean, he, he... James, James Brown, for me, is one of the greatest musical architects. No, nobody in any genre of music could construct music from the ground up like James Brown could. I mean, in, in, if you're looking at what he meant to that music, you have to think of what Beethoven and Mozart meant to that music. You have to think about what Duke Ellington and Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and people meant to jazz and Miles um, and Afro-Cuban music, which I love. People like Tito Puente and, and Eddie Palmieri. Um, and, and I, I mean, if I, I would imagine that for people that that are into country and Western music, they might speak of Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and, and you know, people like that in, 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 you know, from the same context. James Brown was a true original. He, you know, he when when by the mid 60s, when the when the music became what we know as funk, mm -hmm. he was the first person that really, really heard something so different from what other people in, in, in the music were hearing then. And he had remarkable musicians, many of whom were tremendous jazz players in his band. For example, um, the great trombonist Fred Wesley, who was in his band from the late 60s for several years. Of course, the brilliant Maceo Parker, who was also a tremendous R and, you know, jazz player. Um, there was a trumpet player that he had for years by the name of Wayman Reed. These are guys that years later were playing in Count Basie's band. So, you know, it's like tremendous jazz players. Why are they with James Brown? They're James Brown, the same reason I was with Prince. Hey, he did a gig. You know, it's like 
this is a great gig to have. This isn't the music that is what I am about necessarily, but I can do this and whatever, you know, the band leader thinks that I can contribute to their music, fine. But, you know, at one point or another, we all needed a gig. <laughs> yeah. Well, so when, a, I don't know how James, I mean, I, I was telling you, I've watched the uh, movies about him. I have not seen that documentary where your brother mm -hmm. is prominently mentioned. I got to mm -hmm. uh, take a look at that. Was, and Prince, I know, could be hard on people. And we'll get to that in just a minute. Sure. Was James Brown that same kind of musical genius where something would set him off where you as a musician would go, okay, well, he knows what he's talking about. I don't take any personal offense to it. I'm just going to keep Oh, going. absolutely. A absolutely. He he was, um, the, the, you know, I, I am a firm believer that the only, one of the few endeavors where um, authoritarianism is not only valid, but sometimes necessary is, is, is art. And, Make no mistake, you know, the Beatles might have been thought of like as as a group, but try telling John Lennon or Paul McCartney on any given, any given day, who is the leader of the Beatles? Yeah. You know, and and part of, of what made that band so great was the constant tension between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. I'm the boss. No, I'm the boss. And it's like on the day that Paul McCartney brings in a song like Penny Lane, Paul McCartney's the boss. The next day when John Lennon brings in it, Strawberry Fields Forever, he's the boss. Well, there was only one James Brown, and everybody knew who the boss was. But James Brown had an intrinsic trust in his musicians to be able to realize and understand what he was attempting to accomplish. And having the, the the rare combination of those kinds of musicians. And, and, you know, you probably go through a lot of different musicians over the years until you realize, well, here's a group of guys that really gets what I'm trying to do. And you, that's worth its weight in gold mm -hmm. for somebody like James Brown. And for somebody like Prince, all of the musicians and the different iterations of Prince's band, um, having been involved with a lot of, of, of the fans of Prince's music over the years. Um, occasionally, you know, some, you know, the fans love to argue or, or dissect the different bands that Prince had and the different musicians in Prince's band. And, you know, I was at, I was in, in, in Prince's band when it was still called the revolution. And then it became just the, the, the sign of the times love sexy band Years later, his band became known as the NPG, which stood for New Power Generation. And, you know, people would sometimes ask me, well, what do you think Prince's favorite of, of his bands? What do you think Prince's favorite band was? The Revolution, the NPG, this band or whatever? And I would tell him, I said, it's real simple. The favorite band of Prince's was the band he had on that day. You know, makes sense because yeah. the because that's all he's concerned about. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give a damn about what he did last week, let alone ten years ago. These are the musicians I have today, and these are the musicians that I trust to enable me to present my music the way I want it presented today. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about how you got hooked up with Prince and a little bit more on that relationship. Mm -hmm. And then I got to ask about being on stage with Miles Davis yep. and people <laughs> like that. It's, that's overwhelming stuff. Eric Leeds is with us. And occasionally you can hear him around town uh, as well, still performing. Mm -hmm. And he'll join us here in just a minute with more on my first concert. Dave Lee here. I want to thank the folks at... Uh, propane.com for being one of our great sponsors and i think we're all well aware that we got to lower the carbon footprint there's no doubt about that we see a headline on that virtually every day and we need reliable and affordable energy and we need a diverse energy mix and we need that uh, as importantly as anything and in minnesota particularly i think about our distinct seasons so here we really need it Fortunately, a clean energy solution for tomorrow is actually available today, and it's ready to work alongside all the other energy sources, and it's called propane. And you may not have thought about it, but I'll just give you a little factoid which should grab your attention. Propane produces 43% fewer, that's 43% fewer emissions than electricity generated from the U.S. grid. Something to think about. Propane is energy stored on site. It's independent, by the way, from the vulnerabilities of the grid. And propane's benefits don't end there. Major advances are being made today for renewable propane, and it is compatible with traditional propane and requires actually no additional infrastructure investments. So that's another big deal. 
Here in Minnesota, we need to use all our low-carbon alternatives, including propane, to safely provide energy, reliability, resiliency, affordability. Propane is the right energy right now. And you can find out a lot more. In fact, it's a great website to learn about this and what propane can do for you. It's simple. Propane.com. Eric Leeds is with us. Dave Lee here. We're talking about my first concert, a million places to go with this uh, talented musician. But uh, we've been talking a lot the last few weeks about the Minnesota sound. And Eric, although you've played around the country and involved with a lot of different uh, folks, uh, let's talk about your journey here to Minneapolis from Atlanta, I think, at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was living in Atlanta for and a few And you years. end up working with Prince. Mm-hmm. But if I remember the story right, you really didn't know a whole lot about him, did you? Um, not that much. Um, probably, you know, my once again, my brother was was into his music much more than I was. Yeah, was he the tour manager? He had become tour manager for Prince in um, 83. Um, only for several months. And then when it was the 1999 tour. And when that tour was over, Alan, who was actually living in, in New Jersey at that point, he went home to Jersey. He was out on the road um, with the band Cameo, uh, tour managing a tour in the summer of, of 83. And he got a call from Prince's manager, Steve Hargnoli at, the point, at that point, and said, um, we're getting ready to do a movie. And we need somebody to basically kind of serve as a tour manager, but in place, to be the liaison between the band, kind of take care of the band like you would if you were on the road. But it's basically going to be here in Minneapolis while we're shooting this movie. And Alan said, well, that sounds interesting. And Steve Fargnoli, Prince Manager, said, the only thing is you need to come to Minneapolis tomorrow. <laughs> So Alan basically had to tell Cameo, good luck with the rest of your tour. I'm, you know, so basically that's, Alan became Prince's tour manager, uh, office manager, chief of staff, whatever you want to call it. Um, a year later, um, Prince's, the, the, the band The Time, Morris Day and The Time, which of course was completely and utterly produced by Prince, um, once the movie Purple Rain had been completed, Morris Day and several other members of the time, Jesse Johnson, were looking to go out on their own. So the time, it ran out of time. It's basically the time, you know, ran out of time. The, the clock stopped. Um, Prince wanted to um, still have another alter ego group that he could produce and write for. To kind of serve the same purpose that the time had for him. So he came up with an idea of calling a group the family. And he chose Paul Peterson of the Peterson clan here in Minneapolis to be the lead singer. Um, Jellybean Johnson, who would, had been the drummer with the time, he was a holdover. He came, was going to be the drummer in, in the family. Jerome Benton, who was also in the time, he was going to be in the family. For the first time, apparently, Prince decided to want to use a saxophone in this music. Um, One thing that I did know about Prince is that none of his music, he had ever used horns. I mean, real horns in his music. Um, Anyway, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm living in Atlanta at this point. This is now 1984. I get a call from my brother, and he says, um... Prince is putting a new band together and he wants to use a saxophone. He's got a bunch of tracks already done. And, um, and I kind of told Alan said, yeah, well, what does that have to do with me? (laughs) You know? Sure. Fair Um, question. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, well, I've played Prince some stuff of yours that, you know, so he could at least hear you. Um, Because I, I, you know, because Alan probably just heard it you know, just casually hearing Prince said, yeah, I'm thinking about using a saxophone on this stuff for this new group. And Alan then said, um, well, gee, just coincidentally, I happen to know somebody that you might want to check out. So anyway, apparently whatever it was that Prince heard of me, um, fortunately, um, was enough for him to have told Alan call your brother and fly him up here. I want to have him put his horn on these, these the new songs that I've done for this group. 
my initial reaction was, eh, not really that interested. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. Um, by, by then, I, you know, I had some familiarity with Prince's music. There were a couple of things of his that I liked, other things that I didn't care for. But it wasn't like I was thinking about this guy as like the next big thing or this is somebody that, oh, my God, this could be the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> None of that. Sure. It wasn't on my radar screen. Um, it took Alan almost a week or two to talk me in to coming up here. And one of the reasons that I finally decided to is that coincidentally, my mother's from St. Paul. Now, she had left St. Paul when she was young. She moved to New York in, you know, in, in the early 1940s. But I had aunts and aunt and uncle, her, her sister and her sister's family, cousins that lived in Hopkins and dating back, you know, forever. So as a kid in the 60s, we used to come here and visit and spend time here. So I hadn't seen any of my cousins on that side of the family or that aunt and uncle in probably over 10, 15 years. So I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I'm gonna, they're going to fly me up to Minneapolis. I'm going to go in and do this recording session for Prince. Hopefully he'll put enough money in my pocket to make it worth my while. <laughs> and I'm just going to spend a few weeks hanging out with my brother, who I hadn't seen in a while, mm -hmm. and his, his girlfriend, who I had known later, his wife, that I had known already for several years by then. And I'm going to be able to visit with my aunt and uncle and some cousins I haven't seen in years. And you know something? I'll bet my mom and dad might want to come up at the same time. We'll have a nice little family reunion. That's why I came <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> I wonder what Prince was saying to your brother when, why hasn't he made a decision yet? Why hasn't he made a decision? I, I have no idea. My brother, that was my brother's job to finesse that. <laughs> So, I mean, I, and I he did, did. And he did. I, I, I remember I flew up on a Sunday evening and the next day, Monday afternoon, I'm in the studio with Prince. And we did four songs. Now, I wasn't playing with Prince because all the tracks had already been done. I'm just overdubbing the horn. Prince is basically producing the session, telling me what he needs me to do on any given song, whether he needs a part played. This is where I put a solo on. And two, two and a half hours later, we had done four songs for this album. Was he surprised that you could do it right away like that? Um, did he want you to say, okay, listen to this for a while and come back? Or, and you, you know, just he went did, after it? He did say that. When, when Alan introduced me to him, the first thing Prince said to me, he said, well, I've got four songs done. And if you'd like, I can give you a cassette of them and you can live with them for a few days and get an idea of what, you know, the music is about. Um, I, I wasn't trying to be cocky or, or arrogant or disrespectful, but my first thought is, no, I, I didn't say this to him, but my thought was, gee, I don't want to do that because I don't want, I didn't come up here to do homework. I came here to do a recording session. I want to come in here, do it, get paid and go home. I mean, that was basically the attitude. So I, I just kind of smile. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know what the tone of my voice was, but it was like, um, if that's what you want me to do, okay. But I got my horn here. I'm ready to go. Now, in, in the back of my head, and this may sound self-serving and arrogant, but it was like there wasn't anything that led me to believe that this was going to be brain surgery. <laughs> you know. Sure. Because the kind of music that what I had already heard from Prince was a little different from the music that I had been playing in bands of mine for almost 15 years by now. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, from what I could understand that, that what he was looking for was, was somebody coming out of, of, you know, the context of a Maceo Parker or a, or a David Newman or a King Curtis, guys who were like premier saxophone players in R&B music that I learn from. So I just looked at Prince and I said, I'm ready to go if you are. And Prince kind of smiled and he said, all right, let's go. <laughs> so that's what we did. And, and it worked. And it worked. Yeah. And then you, then you worked more with him. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the thing is, is, is that my involvement was really pretty incremental because first of all, all I knew is that this was going to be for an album called by a group called the family. And I'm thinking, well, am I in this band or what? <laughs> You know, and because it seemed kind of odd yeah. that 
that not having met me or just from one session, okay, as far as I know, I'm just putting the saxophone. He'll put a band together for it later. But apparently he is starting to already make up his mind like, okay, this is going to be, you're going to be in the band. And I said, well, okay. Now you also have to understand this was summer of 84. Purple Rain was just coming out. The album had just been released. The movie was going to be premiered in another month. He's going to be going on on tour. So it's like, well, okay, so if this family project happens, what's the timeline for this? Oh, next year sometime. So I'm thinking, well, okay, that gives him a year to completely lose interest in it. You know? Yeah. So, so I had no expectations or illusions about what this might be. So I was like, okay, I did a recording session. We did four songs. He paid me nicely, very nicely. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to hang out here with Minneapolis with my brother and my family. And in another few weeks, I'll go home to Atlanta. And this might be the end of it. Well, a week later, apparently he'd asked, <clears throat> asked Alan, is your brother still around? And he said, yeah. He said, tell him to come in. I got another song for him to do. Came in and we did the song that was actually the song that was on that album that has since become one of Prince's most famous compositions, Nothing Compares to You. So, we, so I put a saxophone solo on that. I think I did another session uh, while I was here that month. So basically, I then went home to Atlanta. And just kind of waited and said, well, I don't know if anything is really going to come of this or not. Fortunately, it did. You know, he went out on the road with the Purple Rain Tour. Short story is I ended up on the Purple Rain Tour with him and the band eventually. Um, he How would much bring, later was that? Um, towards the end of the tour. Mm -hmm. And this was now early 85. He would bring me up to just play on a couple of songs during the show. And it was very odd because I was not really a member of the band. And I was kind of towards the back of the, just in front of the riser. Nobody cared anything about anything that, you know, I was playing. These were people that were there that were just, you know, the fanatics for that concert and that music. And all of a sudden, you know, no one was paying any attention to anything that I was playing on any of these songs other than Prince. I was there purely for his pleasure. But it kept the relationship going at a time. So by then, I'm becoming part of the organization. Yeah, he obviously respected your musical work. Very, very fortunate in that regard. Um this sounds, uh, there's no way that I can say this without it sounding self-serving. <laughs> it's never stopped me before, so I'll go ahead anyway. There was a difference in that I had already, I was older by quite a few years than everybody else in his band. And everybody else in his band had come up in their career through Prince's organization. I already had a career in R&B and jazz for over 15 years. I had a band in Pittsburgh in the early 70s that opened up for, for major jazz artists in Pittsburgh. I had my own bands in Pittsburgh, some of which were some of the more well-known um, R&B funk bands, you know, during the late 70s. Um, so I already had a career in this music, and I had already developed somewhat of a voice as, as a saxophone player. And I think that's what Prince resonated with it. Here's somebody that brings an experience that nobody else in my band has. And it was something that he could relate to on, 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 a, on a different level. So it gave me that opportunity. And also the fact that I was playing an instrument he could not play. Which as the years went by, particularly when several years later now that I'm a member of his band officially, um, there was never a, a moment in a recording studio or in, in a rehearsal where we're going over music. And if he has a specific idea as to what he wants his guitar player to play, all he has to do is, well, he could tell, you know, this is what I need you to, oh, that's not quite it. Let me show you. Grab the guitar, play it exactly, play it like that. Get behind the drums and say, I need a pattern that goes like this. Play it. Boom. Everything's done. Pick up the bass. This is what I need you to do. Go to the keyboard. I need this harmony, this voicing on the keyboard. 
everyone's got it. But when it comes to me and my my dear friend, um, Matt Bliston, who was known as Atlanta Bliss, who was the trumpet player with me in the band, who I was able to get into the band when Prince says, I want a trumpet player. I got the guy. So, on, but he could not come to us. All he could do was try to tell us as best he could, this is what I need from you guys. And he could maybe plunk out a few notes on the keyboard and say, these are the notes I need. But as far as the voicing and the harmony, he couldn't take my saxophone or take the trumpet and show us. So, you know, it, it gave me a big advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And was he, was he challenging to work with? Um, Yes, at times he was. Or did was. that eliminate it since he didn't play saxophone? Well, it, it, it was cha- that was challenging for me because he did not understand anything about the nomenclature or the actual physical abilities or limitations of a saxophone or a trumpet. So there would be an idea that he might have that we would have to tell them, Prince, we can't do that because... The horn can't do that. So the challenge was for us to take his musical idea and be able to then conceptualize it through what the instrument that we play could do. And for him, it was a learning experience. So for a while, we were kind of his lab rats because he, (laughs) you know, for the first time, he's using now a texture and a sound in his music he had never used before. So he was completely dependent on us to be able to realize that for for him and and that was that was interesting and and for me it was fun you know because sometimes it would force me and and my buddy matt to kind of think outside of the box like this isn't something normally we might ask be you know to do by somebody that really is is familiar with the instrument so we have to kind of make it up and give him something that really works. And those were the, those were the, you know, the circumstances, particularly in a recording studio, that were the most enjoyable and sometimes, you know, most, most musically um, fulfilling. To be Did able you to, enjoy to, to, the to touring that. or was it draining? Um, it was, it was both. It, um, you know, the, the funny thing is, is that what was enjoyable about it the first year, particularly because, I had been a bar band musician for so many years where being on the road was being on the road where you're in a van with seven guys in a band and you're, you know, driving two or 300 miles a day to the next town or you're playing some small club or you're playing, you know, maybe for two or 300 people, but you're playing three sets a night. You're playing in motels that you wouldn't want your dog to be staying sometimes, you know, and sure. you're doing it night by night yeah. for several weeks at a time to be on the road with Prince was, a, you know, was not that, you know, we're staying in nice hotels. Yeah. I got my own room, you know, the logistics or everything. So there was a, you know, it, that becomes your new norm, but once it becomes your new norm and you're used to it, it's like, okay, this is now what I'm used to. Um, there were parts of touring, that had nothing to do with the music. For example, um, the next year, and, and I think this is in 87, we did the tour that was in support of his album, Sign of the Times. So it was called the Sign of the Times tour. The staging and the construction of the stage was, was um, magnificent. It was a gorgeous looking stage, the risers and, 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 and the backdrop and everything. But it just so happened that where... I had to stand on stage I didn't like. It was a very, very uncomfortable place for me to have to perform that show. Now, once again, that's not the audience's problem. And, you know, it, it, it didn't stop me from being able to do my job. But it was not an enjoyable tour for me because the logistics of where I had to stand on stage was very uncomfortable. So that's what I remember about that show hmm. more than anything else. Now, the show was fabulous. And if I see and, you know, and hear and look at it, everything looks great. The band sounds great. We look great. But I remember, boy, I did not like being up where I was. And, and you know, and... And, 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 you know, that's neither here nor there yes, to but, what, what, what I'm there to do. But, 
Yeah. How long did you did you play with Prince, and then what did you do after that? Okay, well, I that that band, that iteration of his band, we were all under uh, employment contracts, like three year deals. So it, the the deal was between spring of '86 and spring of '89. So we did uh, another tour in '88 in support of his album Love Sexy, which was probably the most spectacular show you could ever imagine. The mm-hmm. the 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 production on that show was just. It was ridiculous. I mean, it was just absolutely just tremendous production. Um, and I always like to to mention a guy by the name of Leroy Bennett, who was the sound and who was the light and production designer for all of those Prince concerts back then. And a lot of the look of of the staging was because of, of Leroy Bennett and the and the relationship that he had with Prince. Leroy Bennett was, you know, he was like he was almost like a member of the band. You know, he wasn't a musician. He was running the lights and designing the show, but he, everything that he did was so musical that, you know, and I always like to point that out, you know, because a lot of people don't know who he was and, and what his significance was. And anyway, when, when um, my contract as, as a member of his band was up in 89, um, for, very fortunately for me, Prince did for me what was what was the most significant thing that anyone had ever done in my career. He signed me to his record label, Paisley Park, and gave me the opportunity and denied to do what was my primary aspiration of my career was to make my own music and record my own albums, which is what I did for Paisley Park, did two CDs for Paisley Park. Um, I continued to work with him in the studio. He, he would still have me, you know, do things with him in the studio um, after that, even, even while I was no longer a, a actual member of his band. So you maintain a long relationship with him. Oh, mm-hmm. and you played with a lot of gifted drummers too, through the years. Sheila E. Yeah. Talented. Oh my God. The, the funny thing was, is that she became Prince's drummer in, in his band in 87. So the last two tours of sign right. of the times and love sexy, she was now the drummer in Prince's band. I had already, you know, we certainly knew each other before, you know, for that. Um, anyone that hears Sheila's performance as a member of Prince's band is just going to be blown away. But here's the funny thing. Several years later, 1994 and 95, Sheila put a band together um, that I, I kind of helped her put together it was called the E train. I think she still gigs and calls her band sometimes the E-Train, but this original iteration of it in 94 and 95 was actually an Afro-Latin funk band that was probably one of the most amazing bands I have ever in my life played with. And the music demanded so much from me as a musician, which is why I loved playing in that band, and it also demanded things of her as a drummer and a percussionist that Prince's music wouldn't demand. Now, I don't mean that as a criticism of Prince's music or, or the innate creativity or, or artistic um, validity of that music. But this music in, that we were playing in the E-Train was a music that was so centered on Afro-Latin and funk percussion and all of that. It enabled and demanded Sheila to bring everything she could possibly bring from her toolbox as, as, as a percussionist, as a musician, and as a band leader. My point is that any and everything that I thought about Sheila E. when I had just been playing with her in Prince's band... I wasn't prepared. It was like, oh my God, that was only the tip of the iceberg as to what she's capable of doing as a drummer. This band that we had for those two years, she she was absolutely just fun, beyond phenomenal. It, it was a, every night she was just doing things that I was said, how in the world does somebody do that? <laughs> she, she just amazing. When we come back, I want to ask you about Miles Davis. And I want you to think about if you're a concert promoter, mm-hmm. Eric, and you've got to decide, oh, I got three acts I'm going to have in the show, three acts that you'd want to sit and watch and listen to. Uh, I want you to 
think about that okay. for a second, because for you, I think that's going to be an exceptionally tough question. <laughs> uh, Eric Leeds is with us, just an accomplished sax player, R&B and jazz, as you know, worked with Prince, as we just talked about for a long time, and many others as well, open for some of the big acts as well, friend of James Brown. More with him in just a minute before we close it off. I do want to thank Star Bank for making it possible. Starbank.net is their website. You can do all the stuff in banking you want to do uh, with the technology, obviously, right? So everything on your phone, if that's the easiest for you, that works. But I will tell you, it's kind of fun. They're old-fashioned. They like it when you come in. They like to get to know you. I think you're going to know them pretty well by the time you walk out of one of their 10 locations here in Minnesota. Uh, but they built this bank up from years and years of being in the rural communities, and they continue to have great success, family-owned. And uh, when it's a loan application, boy, they get right to it. And that's something I know you'd like. doesn't matter what kind of uh, credit you want, home line of equity line maybe it's a home mortgage it's a business loan it's an ag loan they're very familiar with those through these many many years camper rv whatever it is they're good at it all uh, but get those loan needs met at star bank now uh, star bank is family owned as i mentioned they go to starbank.net you'll have that taken care of call them you know what they do very novel they answer the phone with a real person you'll actually talk to somebody when they pick up the phone it, it's convenient and I know it's easy to do it on the on the phone. It's the same thing I do with the technology, but it really is cool to go into the banks as well. Uh, loans are subject to a loan application approval. Starbank.net, easy to remember. Member FDIC and equal housing lender. Oh, yeah, and by the way, they're our bank here at TalkNorth.com. Eric Leeds is kind enough to share time. Uh, I don't think we have enough time to talk about all of his experiences through the years, but they are many. Eric, I do want to ask you, though, about... Um, Miles Davis, mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't know, as a young kid when you were growing up, and maybe about the time you were in Pittsburgh or in, in Virginia, that you were going to record stores, which, of course, were an enormous yep. thing for oh, all yeah. of us that grew up in that era. Yep. Uh, but Miles Davis, how did he come on your radar, and, and, and how in the world did you end up playing with him? Well, my, I, I could say that probably, you know, by the late 60s, you know, early 70s, Miles had probably become one of of my essential hall of fame you know my own personal um there's probably no musician who is more significant for me in my own aspirations and the music that kind of defined what i wanted to be about you know on that level were somebody like ray charles james brown john coltrane of course as a saxophone player wayne shorter Joe Zavanul, the members, the, the uh, co-leaders of of one of the most significant musical entities for me, the band Weather Report. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Cannonball Adderley. Cannonball was Adderley was also huge. But Miles, you know, and and I said also my absolute love of salsa, you know, Afro-Cuban music, Eddie Palmieri, is on that level. Um, in early uh, some, somewhere around eighty five or eighty six, Prince wanted to do um, a song for Miles. Uh, essentially, it was Miles Miles had just left Columbia Records, which he had been on for his, most of his career, and he was signed by Warner Brothers Records, which is Prince's label. So Warner Brothers was kind of interested in the idea that perhaps Prince might contribute something to Miles's first Warner Brothers album. So Prince came up with a song. Um, he called it, Can I Play With You? And he was going to give it to Miles. But first, he asked me, Prince asked me to put a horn arrangement on it. So I went in the studio and put like a, a, a saxophone, like three or four overdub saxophone section arrangement on it. So then we gave it to Miles, and Miles was just going to take it and overdub his trumpet on it. So he did that. We got the song back from Miles. This was, I guess, early 86. Um, to be absolutely honest with you, it wasn't a great song. And Prince was starting to have second thoughts about it. And Prince asked me about it. And there was one thing about Prince. If he asks somebody a specific opinion, that usually means that he's having second thoughts about it. Because if Prince is convinced about something, he's, he's not stopping to ask anyone's opinion. You know, <laughs> no. I mean, he might jokingly so, but this is something where I remember him coming to me and said, what, what do you really think about this? And I told him, I said, Prince, more than anything else I could think of in my career. You know, with all due respect to you, who's my boss right now. <laughs> but, you know, I think you'll understand that. More than anything else, I would love to shout from the rooftops, 
I'm on a song with Miles Davis. But I said, if I'm going to be on a track with Miles Davis, I would want it to be something other than this. Wow. And Prince, and, and, you know, the good thing about Prince is when he was really serious about something, you could have a discussion with him, musician to musician. And this was a situation where this was not me and talking to Prince, my boss, or Prince, the rock star. This was Prince, a musician, asking me as a musician an opinion. And at that point, you, you know, he sees through you. Because if I start to hem and haw and, and try to say, no, no, don't kiss me. I'm not looking for you to kiss my ass right now. I, I want to know what you're thinking about this. And, and he decided. Now, I'm not going to suggest that he decided not to go ahead with it just because of what I said. But uh, you reinforced asked, he, it. But he asked me. Yep. And, I, and I gave him my opinion. So the song never went anywhere. Now, the song has been heavily bootlegged. It's probably not a Prince fanatic that doesn't have the song somewhere in their collection. Um, so anyway, that was, that was the beginning of the, of the relationship. Now, what happened is that in, um, this was now December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1987. We did a private concert at Paisley Park on the soundstage at Paisley Park which had only been open for about six months from then. It was an invitation only, basically for the business community of, of Minneapolis. People like, you know, the CEO of Dayton's department store and other major had been invited. It was, and it was like, it was a benefit concert to provide money to buy clothes for homeless people. It was a brutal, brutal winter. And Prince decided that... Uh, you know, he needed to do something yeah. for the homeless community. He loved so his hometown. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, I forget I forget what the, you know, the admission, you know, one of these things could have been like a thousand dollar, you know, a ticket, whatever. Um, so the money was, you know, so the concert was, was for that reason. Prince was very smart, though. He also made sure that there were several hundred young people that were there to provide an atmosphere because we were going to perform. And he invited Miles Davis to come as a guest. Miles came. And of course, it was, if you wish to bring your horn, your trumpet, and sit in with us, we would love that. So on the tail end of the concert, on the encore of the song, Miles jumped on stage and played with us for all about five or ten minutes. And all it was was Miles Davis just playing a short little solo on one of the grooves that we were playing. But it was Miles Davis. But it was Miles Davis. <laughs> Um, basically, and, and there's a, you know, that, that concert has been released as, as a video. So it is available for the public to see. It's been online and, 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 and it's part of the, the sign of the times package that was recently released. So you see myself and, and my buddy, Matt Bliston and Miles Davis is one of our biggest heroes in all of music. We don't actually play with him. We're just standing there while Miles Davis is playing and we're just kind of looking at each other and just kind of said, that's Miles Davis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, oh yeah, God. yeah. What an experience. Yeah. Uh, so, what what have I left out that that you want to mention? I'm sure there's a million things we can oh, bring God. up. Oh God, I. Is there a concert you performed that stood out above the others? Um. Well, yeah, there were several were Prince that did you know the various um, some gigs of my own when I had. Um, when I had one of my first jazz bands in Pittsburgh in 1972, we opened up a concert for Weather Report and Rosslyn Roland Kirk, who was one of the legendary jazz saxophones. Um, I was young, so I can't really remember much about what we played. I remember about the music that we're done. And at that, on that concert that evening, as I mentioned, this band Weather Report was one of the most significant bands in, in my life. Was that one of your first albums too? Um, well, I mean, I, I, I was familiar with all of the musicians who were going to be in that band. So when, when Weather Report's first album was released, literally I was in the record store in Pittsburgh waiting for them to put it in the bin. Yeah. 
That's how excited I was about this new band. And the two co-leaders of that band was the keyboard player from Vienna, Austria, by the name of Joe Zavanul, who I had already been familiar with for probably 10 years because he had been Cannonball Adderley's piano. You know, he had worked with Miles Davis in the studio a lot. Wayne Shorter was the saxophone player and the co-leader of that band. He had played with Art Blakey's band. He had been in Miles's band for years. So these were two of my biggest heroes in music. And after we played... Me and my band, we're in our little dressing room at, 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 at the theater that we played in Pittsburgh. And I look up in the doorway, there's Joe Zavanol and Wayne Shorter. And they look in at us, and they're looking at all of us, but I was kind of nearest, nearest to them. And they kind of looked at me and everyone said, you're, you're the musicians who are the, the band that played before us? And I, I kind of shyly said yes, because I knew Joe Zavano's reputation was that he did not suffer fools. <laughs> and I was scared. There was a part of me that was like almost, said, oh, great. You know, I was Here waiting for go. him to say, kid, don't quit your day job. You know, <laughs> My hero. For, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fortunately, you know, fortunately, he looked at us and he smiled and he says, you guys keep at it. You got something really cool going on. And of course, for me, it was like, yeah. okay. Yeah. I could die now. I'm cool. That and and probably the first time that I was able to sit in with Eddie Palmieri and the years and, and subsequent times that I've been able to 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 play with him. This is a music that is entirely about the the um, Afro-Cuban and Puerto Rican um, existence and experience in music coming from from the music of of Cuba, Africa, of course, Puerto Rico, and how it grew up in New York in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And for me to be able, from, from a kid who's half Jewish growing up and born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to be able to have an opportunity to play this music that is such um, entirely about the experience of what it is to be of, of that heritage in New York City, which is completely foreign to me as from my experience. But my ability to play this music with somebody, Eddie Palmieri, who was really the Miles Davis and Duke Ellington and Thelonious Monk of that music all in one. And for, and for Eddie to have said to me once after, I would always thank him when I'd get an opportunity to play with him. And he said, man, Eric, don't sweat it. He said, this is your home. Wherever my bandstand is, this is your home. And that is perhaps one of the most meaningful compliments or anything that any one could say to me. Yeah. yeah. How, how do you top that? Yeah. Let me digress before I let you go. The Yankee, the love of the New York Yankees, where did that happen? Well. Because you're still a baseball guy. Yeah. It, it. Well, you see, my brother was a Brooklyn Dodger fan as a kid. Mm. That was his religion. And then they, they so, left well, him. Well, yeah. So they left to L.A. We followed. So I, I had to be a Dodger fan, else my brother would beat me up. <laughs> So for decades and yeah, decades yeah. and decades, we're Dodger fans. But by the early '90s, the Dodgers had you know they 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 had become something completely else. I'm I'm a, we're diehard baseball fans, but by then they said you know it's hard for me to root the, for the Dodgers. Rupert Murdoch had owned the team by. <laughs> so how am I going to root for a team owned by Rupert Murdoch? I'm sorry, can't do that. So around ninety. Five ninety six. I'm starting to watch now, and and all those years, the Yankees were the evil empire. Yes, I mean they were the sure. antithesis. You know, so the Mickey Mantle, Yogi Berra, Yankee. No, no, they're they no. I'm not into them. But all of a sudden, around ninety six or some, I start watching some Yankee games, and I start to see this kid Derek Jeter, and I start to see Bernie Williams, and I start to see Andy Pettit and Mario Mariano Rivera, and I'm thinking, oh my God. And for a first six months, I was afraid to tell my brother that I was becoming a Yankee fan. <laughs> only, to, only to learn when I said to him, I said, I got something to admit, and I don't want you to kick my ass too much. I said, I'm becoming a Yankee fan. He said, oh, thank God, it's not just me. <laughs> so from that day on, we have become diehard Yankee fans. I still have an allegiance to the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. You know. Sure. So... I had a hell of a weekend this weekend past because the Yankees were in L.A. So basically, I said, well, who do I root for tonight? You know, um, I just have to take it as it comes. I said, the Yankees took two out of three. I'm great with that. But the other night, the Dodgers won. I'm fine with that, too. Think back to Garvey and Say and Davey Lopes. Yeah, and- because that was the Dodger team that I loved. Yeah. And, and, and Fernando Valenzuela, you know. You- 
you mentioned Bernie Williams. He was a a jazz musician. He did is. you did you cross paths with that? Never have, but a friend of mine who lives who maybe you know who lives in town here, the great guitar player Joe Elliott, is friends with Bernie. And Bernie Williams has been in town a couple times. Um, and they just talk guitar. And I, I've told Joe, I said, next time Bernie, you gotta let me know. I, you know, yeah. So, you know, but, but I have not met him. But yeah, but I, I certainly was familiar all this time. Oh, He's gosh. a tremendous guitar player. Oh, yeah. you guys would have so much in common, I would yeah. think. So, uh, final final question. Yep. You're going to put together that show of your top three acts. Oh, boy. Alive or not. And it's a tough one. And it's one of those things you think about and you walk out here going, I should have said so and so, but off well, the top I, of your head, I, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could say I could say so and so, so and so, so. You're gonna give me three, okay? I have to say James Brown from the period of the late '60s, um, when he had probably James Brown always had great bands, but it was the band in the late '60s that was really the band that invented what we call funk, and I remember the experiences seeing that band in the late 60s. And when the disciples of Einstein finally do um, complete a time machine that I can go back in time, one of the first stops is gonna be in 1967 to revisit some of the James Brown gigs that I saw. So that has to be one of them. Um, Weather Report, probably from the iteration of the band from around 1974. And boy, I could say so many iterations of Miles' bands, but I would have to say any iteration of any band that Eddie Palmieri had. Hmm. Those would probably, you know, off. Now, the thing is, ask me tomorrow, I might give you. <laughs> That's right. You know, I might, you know, yeah. I never got a chance to see John Coltrane and his, and his iconic quartet. I never, you know, you know, so that's something that I could think, oh, I never had that opportunity, but. You know. What if people want to see Eric Leeds right now? What's their opportunity to do that? Um, I wish I could say much more opportunity. I'm kind of, like you said, I'm, I'm, I hate to say I'm semi-retired, but that gives me the opportunity to play when I want to. Um, I have a group, a, pro, a project, an ongoing project with my dear friend Paul Peterson uh, that we call LP Music. It's an instrumental project. We gig from time to time when we can. Um, and when we kind of feel like it and, you know, I have a website, ericleads.com. Um, Paul and I have another website, leadspetersonmusic.com. So you can go to them and now and then we might have a gig up, you know, I, I, I'm at my, at, you know, at the point that I, I, I'm fortunate to kind of play it, play it my leisure. Yeah. So I wish I could say that Here's my here's my right. upcoming, upcoming itinerary. Um, just check in with just check in with me now and then. <laughs> I might be a gig. Well, you've earned that position. <laughs> well, <laughs> Eric, great having you here. I really appreciate your time and, oh, and I, congratulations on all the success and uh, as a young kid to fall in love with jazz. And I'm, I'm sure at that time, probably when you're younger and into jazz, was that unusual? Um, yeah, there were, were very very few friends of mine at school that that I you know yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it all worked out pretty well and still is, as a matter of fact. Davide, thank you so much. Eric Leeds, again, is our guest here on My First Concert. Dave Lee with you. I want to thank the folks at Aquarius Home Services and here at the Aquarius Home Services studio at starbank.net, at propane.com, and, of course, our good friends at UCARE. Again, you can download these podcasts on Apple, on Spotify. You can subscribe and download right there. Go to uh, talknorth.com. We have a number of great podcasts on there as well. We're going to come back next week and, and do this again. My First Concert. We'll talk to you at that point.